Welcome to the Humble Hoof Podcast. My name is Alicia Harlov. This is a podcast for both horse owners and hoof care professionals, offering discussions into various philosophies on the health of the hoof and soundness of your horse. Please check us out on Facebook or at thehumblehoof.com. It's hard to be professionally involved in hoof care and not know the name Dr. Simon Curtis. Dr. Curtis is a farrier in the UK who earned his PhD studying full hoof care and has taught at countless conferences, seminars, and clinics. He has published textbooks on various aspects of farriery and even has his own podcast called The Hoof of the Horse, which is also the title of one of his most recent books. Lately, because of COVID restrictions, Dr. Curtis has put on interactive webinars on various hoof topics, and he agreed to talk to me about some questions pertaining to concepts from these webinars, as well as talk about others he has coming up. So why don't you tell us about how you got into hoof care and how you ended up pursuing a PhD in it? Well, that's the, yeah, we haven't got time for that, Alicia, so I'll shorten it. I reckon I'm genetically programmed to be a farrier because I haven't really bothered going back further than five generations, but they were all farriers on the father's side of my family. And in the local area, in as much as we seem to be travelling north by about five to ten miles every generation. So I still live only yeah, 25 miles at most from where my great-grandfather had a forge. And I usually drive past it once a week. So... So I came from a family of farriers. They were in the Newmarket area, and Newmarket being the headquarters of racing in the UK and, and the birthplace of it. I think they, they migrated in when the horse disappeared off the land, uh, you know, as, as farm animals, which was at the same sort of time as it did in the States from the 30s to the 50s. You know, they obviously had to have work, and they'd been traditional blacksmith stroke farriers up to that point. And my father bought a forge in... Newmarket, which I still own, so we've had that. That was after the Second World War he bought it. So he worked very hard, as we all do with horses and hoof care, in the hope that his four sons would do something more than shoe horses. Well, three of them shod horses, and though he was really delighted, he was never one of these parents to push you in a direction. So he was delighted, but unexpected. Um, I left school at 16, which is relatively young. Um, I failed math and I failed English. And I got the other six subjects. Basically, in England at that time, you were examined at 16 on eight subjects. And if you only got two, the two to get was English and math, which was the two I failed. I could have stayed on and retaken them, but I sort of left. And I just said to my father, I'd like to be a farrier, which... Quite surprised him and it almost surprised me because I've never really given it a lot of thought. It was more I didn't fancy going back to school. So then I buried myself in my work and uh, after 10 years I was getting a bit brain dead, you know, and I just just shoeing and trimming really. And, um, and then I found out about this funny named organisation called the Worship Company Barriers and how they did examinations, and I took an exam, and I'm one of those weird people that like, likes exams. So I did that, and then I took the next, and then I took the third, which was the fellowship. So I was quite young passing the fellowship. I think I was 31 years old, 
Uh, usually people are in their 40s, occasionally in the 50s when they pass that. But there's no, you know, there's no time on it. It's uh, if you're good enough, you're good enough. It's nothing to do with your age. So I took that, and, and so that sort of satisfied quite an obvious desire that I didn't know for study, shall we say. Um, my friends always thought I was a little bit of a nerd. And so that satisfied me. And then you think, well, where do you go? And so I got to be fairly well known, well, to farriers, horse owners, and uh, veterinary surgeon. I probably had more invites to the British Equine Veterinary Congress than any other farrier. And that gets about 1,800 veterinary surgeons from around the world there. It's probably half the size of the AAEP, but it's still it's a pretty big one. So I was getting that, and I was writing a few articles because I was asking somebody who failed English at, at times was a struggle. But you know, when you write some, when when you're doing something you're interested in, you're a lot better at it. Aren't you? And um, and you, there, there's always people. That's what editors are for to correct your English. And then I thought, you know, I had a book in mind. So they say all of us have a book inside us. Um, well, I think I've proven I've got more than one. But, mm-hmm. Um, I I wrote that and um, it was well received and that sort of helped make my mark around the world as well. So I started getting invited to speak in the States and and other places. And then uh, I almost followed, you might say, the political sort of line where I went on our Farrier's Registration Council, which is is a quasi-autonomous body but it, 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 it has to answer to government, which registers our farriers. So in the same way as doctors or dentists, etc., are registered. So I, I went down that line and I ended up chairman of that. So I was only the second farrier in history to chair our own board. You know, I think we should have reached a level of maturity where it's always a farrier chairing that. But, uh, hopefully there's only been one since. So I did that. And then I was in a pub, and I don't know whether you've ever been in an English pub. I have. Good. Well, as you know, it's the best ideas place in the world. (laughs) Cozy, you're with friends or even colleagues. That's where the best business is done, whether it's actual financial or academic or just learning things. And I just happen to say... I mean, I was in, in there with uh, some barriers and Professor John Riley because we were actually just finished at uh, an award ceremony for all the young farriers who passed their diploma. And he was promoting a degree up in the north of England, a farrier degree, you see. And uh, I said, well, what, what will it take for me to get this degree? Thinking, I don't want to do the five years part-time, which is what it was. Well, he, he said, you'll get um, recognition for prior learning. In other words, because of my other qualifications and what I've done and because I've published, that would be recognised by the university. I'd have to say, like all people talking you into doing something, even professors aren't averse to exaggerating. So I did have to do more work than he said, because whatever he'd promised me, the university said, uh-uh, no, we're not, you know, just letting him off doing this and that. So I used to drive up. It was about, uh, on a good day, four and a half hour drive and on a bad one, six hours, which, as you know, in the UK being a way smaller 
country than the States. That's quite a drive for us in, in the UK. And I used to go every month for two days. And um, that's how I got through that degree. And towards the end of the degree, the same Professor Riley said to me, you should do a master's. You see, and I hadn't really thought about it. And then he said, well, a master's is only two years part-time. And I thought, well, that's not too bad. I can survive two years part-time. And honestly, the day before I applied and I had an interview by telephone with the university, he said to me, well, why don't you do a PhD? How long's that? And he said, six years. I thought, oh, six years, that's just too much. And he said, yes, but you can go, which we have a scheme in the UK and, and some other countries. I'm not sure whether you do it in the States. It's called MPhil leading to PhD. So Master of Philosophy leading to PhD. And the great thing was with it is that most people do a master's. They do that either a year at uni or two years part-time. And then they put all that work to one side and start a PhD. But with MPhil to PhD, the, the MPhil counts towards your PhD. So it actually knocks two years off what would have been an eight-year process. And then it was a six-year. And I, I actually did it in five years, one month. Um, and and my, even my supervisors in university were a bit surprised how much I worked and how quick. But the truth is I was frightened I might drop the baton. You know, I, I just felt that if I stopped, I might stop forever. So, so it was a, a really wonderful experience. And I would encourage anybody uh, to go back as a mature student to a university, especially if, if you can do it part-time and carry on working. Universities love mature students because they know they're motivated. And um, so it was a wonderful experience. So at the end of it, again, my PhD, I had studied what I wanted to study, which was fold hoof growth. And I found out from other colleagues at university that not all PhD students are that lucky. Uh, many of them are just given the specific subject within, obviously, the overall subject. For example, you know, universities do lots of research work. So if you have got a contract from government to look at, should we say, something to do with a, a jet engine, uh, as a PhD student, they just tell you what part of that, that project you're doing. Whereas I, and I didn't realise that was what a lot of PhD students get. I, I chose my own subject, told my supervisor exactly what I wanted to do, and they were as, well, almost as enthusiastic as me, and they just encouraged me and uh, helped me. So, as I say, wonderful experience it was. So that's how I got there. One fascinating idea to me is full hoof care, because we as hoof care professionals have the ability to influence the conformation of the horse when working on them at a young age. Of course, this could be good or bad. Angular limb deformities, where one or more joints of the limb are offset, leading to a look of a bend or twist in the limb, you know, one easy simple example would be a pigeon-toed horse, can sometimes be corrected if you get to the foal early enough. Dr. Curtis has worked extensively in these cases, so I asked him to chat a bit about them. But, you know, I I think at this point I have all of your books except the most recent one um, where you have images of farriers working. But I've loved all the other ones. I've learned so much from them. So obviously everything you learned getting your degrees has been really helpful for others, too. 
And I've attended a few of your webinars at this point. So I have some questions based on the ones that I've attended and kind of leading up to the one that you're going to be doing in a few weeks on hoof growth. Yeah. And so one of my first questions is, so this is going back to, you did a webinar that focused a lot on foals and intervention in foals as they're growing. I tried to cover the whole subject. I'll tell you why I did this, Alicia, is that's the subject that I'm best known for. And what I decided that I was going to do, try doing webinars for hoof care people, I thought the easiest, you know, that it, that's complex enough to learn all those different skills. So I thought, well, I'll, I'll do the thing I know best. So that, that's why I picked that, really. And, um, and although it's a little bit of a niche subject within hoof care, um, yeah, it was pretty well received. Oh, yeah. And I think that's a subject that, or at least, you know, a lot of the farrier friends that I talk to, and myself as well, when we're coming, if we're called into a foal or a young horse, I feel like I'm a little bit unsure sometimes because it's such, you're, you have so much influence and you don't want to mess it up, you know? So one of my first questions is based on that webinar. Yeah. And this is something I've wondered. Uh, do you think that we would see less pathological issues with foals if they had more freedom of movement from birth? Okay, well, that, that's an interesting one, Alicia, because sometimes excessive exercise causes problems and sometimes, of course, they need it. And, and you know, foals are bred differently worldwide. The thoroughbreds have this thing, you know, racing thoroughbreds, because they want them racing at two. They're basically born from end of January. You know, you it's quite rare even to get May foals now. So, so here's the thing. You know, England can be quite chilly in uh, January, February. Kentucky is freezing. So often foals don't get turned out. I think they, they catch up. And all the evidence is how quickly they do catch up. But when, with, with some orthopedic issues, for example, so lax foals, in other words, where their tendon laxity and toes are pointed out, and I know a lot of foals are basically born a little bit lax anyway because they haven't had any exercise in the uterus. Basically, we're looking at the lower leg and thinking that's where the problem is. The problem's up in the muscle. You know, they, they, they need to get fit. But in order to get fit, they need to trot and gallop about a field. And if their bulbs of their heels are on the ground, they're liable to injure them. So it's getting a balance where easing them into exercise helps them. Now, the other side of the coin is the foals that actually too much exercise early on harms them. And those usually come into the angular limb deformity category. And, of course, there's no end of those. Because if you overstress the growth plate, then you can shut it down. So that's why some of these actually benefit from, if not, you know, complete stable rest, then barn rest, you know, a relatively small barn. Well, they can move about, but they don't get into a gallop. So all of them need treating as individuals, and uh, smaller breeders can do that. Actually, bigger breeders can do it as well. But, of course, it can become a little bit of a production line mentality with um, large breeding operations. But the one thing I'd say, as, as with most things in the horse industry, 100 years ago, they had better ideas. 
if, if the old stud farms where I am, and there's lots of new ones, but the old ones had lots and lots of small paddocks, nursery paddocks, quite small to the folding area. So the fold would be led out, it'd get out in the open air, it could get some grass with its mother, but it wouldn't go careering about. You know, these are little paddocks that probably maybe only 30 yards by, well, maybe 30 yards square. So they're big enough for the horse to move about, but not big enough for it to uh, get too much exercise. And I notice newer stud farms, and they don't do that. It's like too much trouble to make all these little paddocks which need more maintenance, etc. And I think that's a pity, really, because I think small paddocks for newly born foals is ideal, really. And and you mentioned the angular limb deformities, and I know that that's something where, you know, it, with intervention, we can sometimes correct those. And at what age range can we have the most influence in that? And what age is it, you know, a permanent issue from then on? Uh, okay, I almost feel there ought to be somebody do a graph, which on one side of the graph would be severity and the other side of the graph would be time. So if they're really severe, you need to work on them straight away. And if they're mild, there's, you can just watch a little while and, and, and monitor and, and not be too aggressive or try and be too heroic. But mainly the lower growth plates, so the two either side of the, of the fetlock, I usually have a window of three months of age. And that's why we need to be looking at our foals at one month. So that's, that's the bad news, that you haven't got a big window of opportunity. The good news is it's really quite extraordinary how well they respond, angulations around the fetlock, to a correctly fitted extension. Or, or in mild cases, just decent trimming. So then if we have carpal valgus, um, which is by and large uh, the growth plate just above the carpus, so uh, at the bottom of the distal radius, that one doesn't, it doesn't actually reach full closure till between 18 and, and 24 months. But that doesn't mean you can work on it to that age because it's only when it's really active. And the most active period is sort of five to seven months. So unless they are really bad, I would rather that you wait until five months, uh, as I say, unless they're really severe, because that means you know that the fetlock is pretty much formed and you're not going to do any damage with it. So I, I do break that rule if they really have a bad angular deformity. I think I showed at least a couple of examples in my webinar. And then I would have to say it's action this day. And you just don't say, I'll come back and have a look at it in two weeks' time. You have to make a plan there and then with the owner, and, and you need to move on with it. But as I say, as a, as a rule, unless they're severe, uh, it's get on with the fetlock, leave the carpus um, or the hock for a while, and you have got some time to deal with them. And, and that actually made me think of another question that's sort of jumping topics a little bit. But do you think the age at which we start horses riding, you know, obviously, I, I assume it's similar in the UK, but in the States, racehorses are started very young, 18 months old. Do you think that plays a role in hoof pathology or soundness long term? Yeah, well, that, 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 that's the problem is what I mentioned earlier, that the, the growth plate above the carpus isn't fully closed then. 
but I, I'm not sure if they'd be racing at 18 months. You can, if, if you say you can have a fold, you potentially you can have a thoroughbred foal born in June. They're not going to be racing to a two-year-old till about March, so it's not that much more, but probably 21 months. Now you wouldn't you wouldn't think that India is a place that you would expect better animal welfare, but they don't allow their racehorses to race until the September after. So in other words, they're about the youngest is going to be 28 months and maybe 30. But that that is still very young for them. But I don't think we're going to change that. I think most people recognise it. It's been going on for 250, 300 years, and it's difficult to change. I think far healthier the equine sports where where horses aren't broken in until they're three, and that's healthier for the horses, but we're not going to change it. I, I would say having you know, knocked the thoroughbred world for that and, and criticised it. I would say that the thoroughbred world, maybe because of monetary or economic reasons, they have been far better at hoof care from an early age. And some of these other horse breeds now, which are fetching big money, you know, the, the warm bloods, etc., the sports horses, they are turning their attention to foals. And so I'm a strong believer that um, if you get good hoof care young and correct hoof care, then you do you do actually produce sounder horses which last uh, you know for a longer time. You know I'm fully convinced of that, and I would really like the horse world to wake up to that. And and even people in the hoof care industry, because most uh, I, I don't think people understand this that that farriers in a, in an area where there's thoroughbred stud would give their right arm to get a stud heart. They love doing all those folds. And the reason is they've got professional people holding them. Whereas a lot of farriers outside that sort of industry, they shy away from folds. So they don't encourage owners and breeders to get on with their folds early because they know they're going to have somebody who doesn't really know how to hold it at the end of a rope and it's going to be really difficult for them to do the work. So I think that's that's work in progress, really, getting getting the, the, the horse world to take holes moves seriously, or the whole of the horse world, and also getting people trained so that they can hold them while they're trimmed, and getting those people that are involved in the trimming keen to do them at all times. So... A lot of work to do there, really. Yeah. And actually, I will agree with you. I used to trim for a jockey who bred her own racehorses. And she had those foals picking up all four feet. You know, from a very young age, they were very well behaved, even better than some of the older horses that I trim. And I think it was just because, you know, she knew that they were going to be racing. You know, they were going to start training at this age and racing at this age. And they need to be able to, you know, be a solid citizen. So that's one thing I do give her credit for. And I, I don't know if that's the same throughout the thoroughbred industry, but I it appreciate pretty, that. There's always exceptions, of course, but um, it, it's pretty much that's the way it is. And uh, it makes life a lot easier. And, and, you know, as we all know, when you're thinking about your safety, you're not concentrating on the hoof. Are you? So I've always told owners and managers, and breeders, look, mate, a good situation and and then the person working on your horse's hooves is going to be thinking about one thing your horse's hooves 
But if you're in a dangerous situation with a difficult horse and if you're in conditions where you can't see as well, etc., then of course you your your mind is not fully on on the trim. And and so it's in their interest uh, to provide the conditions, really. Anyone who has listened to the podcast likely has heard me talk about the term dynamic balance or the balance of the hoof in motion, watching the movement of the limb and the landing and loading pattern. Static balance refers to when we assess the balance of the hoof while standing square on a flat level surface. I asked Dr. Curtis how he incorporates these two concepts when he's working. So kind of moving on to the the last webinar that you did and kind of tagging on about thinking about looking at the hoof and, you know, focusing on that yeah. while you're working. Um, so your last webinar that you did was on balance. And this is something that I feel like I've spent so much time trying to learn about and, and read about lately and shadow other farriers and see what they're doing. Because I feel like so many people have such different approaches to balance. <laughs> so one question I have for you is how much weight do you put in static balance versus dynamic balance and how do you use those two when you're working okay and of course the interesting thing is not when they agree when they conflict when you what do you go with so i would have to say that for much of my everyday showing i relied 95 percent on static balance the horse was tied up and i looked at it and I might have looked at it as walked up to being tied up. But basically, I picked the, the legs up and assessed it's static. I would say that if I ever was concerned, I would have it walked. But that still means that 95% of the horses, it was static balance. Now, when I spent over 20 years at uh, the biggest equine hospital in Europe at Rossdales uh, as a senior farrier there, and, and I'm still down as a consultant, Every single horse I worked in, on whatever the problem, well, unless I had a broken leg, I walked. I walked it. And I think that's important as well. But so, because we get more information when they walk, as I showed with the poles. But then the, 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 you get different information, of course, from walking. And, and, and I never trotted a horse for assessment. Trotting's great for lameness. But for actually assessing the confirmation, how they move, I think walking gives you the most information. So now the problem is when there is a conflict. I would say if there is a conflict, and that's usually between uh, level or unlevel landing, and we, we had that spoken about a lot um, at, at the webinar on top balance. So, for example, the horse that you pick the leg up and you look down the long axis and you can see that the, the bottom of the foot really is at 90 degrees for that long axis. And yet when you, even at the walk, you can see a clear unlevel landing that it touches down on the outside and then slams the inside out. I think that those horses usually have quite an outward rotation and I have to say that I, I don't want them to land as unlevel as that, but it's also unrealistic to think you're ever going to get that. Because uh, I have often said about some of them that you could trim that hoof on the outside down at the colliery band and they would still land unlevel. So I think sometimes 
you have to say, you know, it's it's not a perfect world. But so that's the way I, I've done it. I'm a great believer in static balance. I think for 95% of your work, static balance gets you there for 95% of the horses. When you're in doubt, have them out and walk them. I think if you're shoeing and putting shoes on, then actually dynamic balance, because you have this added ability of where you place the shoe. So sometimes that gives you, rather than change that angle uh, to the long axis of your trim, it's whether you give a little bit more steel, should we say, on the outside or a little bit further back. And I get that information from static balance. I, I hope that helps, Alicia. Yeah, definitely. And that's something where I think I just want to keep watching other farriers and something I need to make sure I'm constantly <laughs> assessing myself because I will be learning for forever, really. <laughs> well, I can still remember going with my father and him walking the horse up and down. And I hadn't got a clue what he could see. And I asked him to show me again. And he asked the owner to walk up and down again. And he was very good at explaining, and obviously he wanted me to succeed. Uh, the owner started to get annoyed. But I realized that, you know, then suddenly it started to click. And I think you get that with any skill, don't you? That the more you persist, it, it does come. You start seeing things that you never saw early on. And um, I think that's the thing to persist. I would have to say, occasionally, you do get people that play the emperor's clothes with with balance and walking. And uh, you know what I mean by the emperor's clothes, don't you? They sort of say, can't you see it? <laughs> and and that embarrasses people into saying, well, yeah, of course I can see it. And I think that's a terrible thing to do. And I've seen people do that publicly at, at clinics. Anyway, so I would hope I've never, ever done that myself. But, but it is a problem that early on you don't see things that experienced eyes do. But the whole point about education is that you pick up on it a lot more quickly because somebody's pointing out to you. And um, I always hated the answer from people, well, you know, it takes 25 years to get good at this job. And I used to say, I haven't got that time. You know, if, you, if you can just give me a few simple answers and, and point things out, then, then maybe it only takes five or 10 years. I don't know. Yeah. So you and Simon Moore go, you know, much further in depth on balance in in your last webinar. Is there a way that people can actually purchase the webinars you've already done, or is it just to purchase before it's aired? We, because we got quite a lot of demand for them afterwards, uh, we did sell them afterwards. Um, so people need to email Sophie, which, shall I see if I can remember the email address? Sure. Okay. It's sjcurtisbooks at gmail.com. And that will get to Sophie and she will try to sort you out. But we're a little bit wary about selling them on afterwards because we think it's fairer to the people who've signed up at the time. But we'll, we'll see how it goes. Obviously, we do them because we want as many people to benefit as possible. And that's, that's you know, why we try and push them out widely through the wonderful and much-loved Facebook. Right. And you have <laughs> your next webinar coming up at the end of May. Is it May 20th? 
May 20th, Alicia. Yes, we are looking at hoof growth, which on the face of it, you might say, well, that's sort of a little bit of an esoteric subject and what good does it do me? But, you know, um, I think people who, who work with the hoof all day long, it's surprising. A, how, how little they know about that, which they work on most of the time. They, they usually know far more about the rest of the horse. And the other thing is, it's not esoteric. We are going to discuss things which you can use in your everyday work and will help you to improve the hoof. And if you can improve the hoof, then to put it bluntly, you can earn more money or you can make your clients happier. And we all know we need to have happy clients. So, so we're aiming it. Yes, there's, there's going to be stuff for the nerd, and I can't help myself on that. Um, but there's also going to be more stuff for, you know, what is practically happening. And um, I've just been having a, a great debate, actually, on Facebook, and all sorts of uh, stuff's come out, really good answers. I just posed the question, what's the biggest factor in, in hoof growth? Or what's the greatest factor affecting hoof growth, I should say? And, uh, yeah, no end of stuff. And, and none of them really wrong. But I've only noticed two answers out of about 150 that are correct. So I find it a little bit strange that we don't know what's the biggest factor affecting food growth. And I hope that when I reveal it at the webinar, people will, will say, oh, that's so obvious. I don't know if you know, Alicia, in my PhD, most of my PhD was about how compression of horn affects hoof growth. Do you know, nobody has ever, ever suggested before that, and of course it's been out five, six years ago, that horn compresses. And I had to show it scientifically, and I showed it quite simply, but it explains an awful lot of things that happens to our hooves. You know, that whole, that whole webinar on, on hoof balance, why do hooves, uh, if we want to say push out of shape or grow out of shape, well, it's mainly because one side is compressing more than the other. Or, uh, should we say, in the case of a club foot, I actually believe it, it's yes, the heel is growing more than the, than the dorsum, but it's because the dorsum is compressing more. So, compression has got a lot to do with hoof growth, and if we know how to manipulate that, how to either to alleviate it where there's too much compression or actually use it, then we can we can use it beneficially. So I'm quite keen to keep getting that message out um, that, that hoof horn does this unusual thing. Well, it's not so unusual. You, you get, you know, material compression uh, with, with lots of materials, but it just hadn't been suggested that that's what was going on uh, with our hooves. So I'm... You know, I'm quite keen to get that information out as far and as wide as possible. Yeah, and I'm really excited to participate in that. And when I post this episode, I'll post a link to your next webinar and I'll include that code. So it's just humble hoof and you get they get 25% off. They the do. They go on and a good discount because as I say, you know, I I do need pay the bills but i'm doing this like most of the stuff the aim is to get as much information out as possible and uh, there was a very very well-known barrier from texas bernie chapman he was the fellow who he didn't discover the heart bar but he was very clever in using it for the treatment of laminitis and he used to say 
that knowledge was like horse manure, that when you leave it in a pile, it doesn't do a lot of good. But when you spread it around, it's really useful. So I never forgot that. And I always think that, that let's try and spread education. And um, so, yeah, we're, we're really pleased to offer your followers that discount. And, um, and you know, because you've seen the previous webinars and you've seen when I've posted who's partnered us, it's not that I'm going around and offering it to, you know, 10 different groups of followers. So I, I'm really grateful for you for, for promoting it, Alicia, because it, we have a, it's a nice fit with what you do and what I'm doing, really. Yeah, and I, I'm very thankful that you've offered it, and um, I hope that people take advantage of it because I've really enjoyed your webinars so far. I like that there's some interactive parts to it and your diagrams and videos and, and ways of explaining things have been really, really eye-opening. So thank you for doing them. <laughs> That's really kind of you to say that. And um, yeah, we, we wanted to make it more than just you know, a couple of lectures where you just sit and look at the screen. That's the, the, the problem with, we all know the problem with webinars. Yeah, you're getting the same information. And yeah, it's nice you're at home and you haven't had to drive miles to fly to a conference. But it's just trying to get that little bit more excitement and interest. So I'm glad, yeah, you've picked up on, we, we do a few things to try and keep the audience on their toes. And we're going to carry on doing that because it's been really well received by everybody that's got back to us and, Given us lots of feedback. And, and that is the other thing as well, Alicia, is that we genuinely want feedback because it was a new venture for us. Sometimes you can carry on doing things and you don't realize that that's not actually what people want. And sometimes as well, you're as likely, just because you don't think it's gone well, uh, to drop something. And so we need the feedback because we need to know uh, what we do well and what we don't do well. And we do say that thing that if we've if you like us, tell your friends, and if you don't like us, tell us. You know, and then and then we'll carry on improving. And uh, before we sign off, I guess one of my or my last question is: Do you have any tips or advice for farriers or hoof care professionals that are you know sort of just starting in this field, or even those who have been in the field for a while? Oh, uh, I think I think you have to look after your body. That's the first thing. You know, I I retired from shoeing and trimming last year i did 48 years i have had you know just like everybody else in it back problems but i've kept going and i learned later on i should have learned it early but there wasn't the information exercises that you can do for your back to keep yourself going so look after your health and um, because it is a tough job i would say enjoy it as well because i think it's a uh, because it's hard work if you don't enjoy it then it's going to be a miserable life. So enjoy it. We we have great advantages. You know, we all know that we're healthier when we're not stuck in an office. We get to see different people. Um, most barriers and, and, and hoof trimmers work for a variety of clients. So you might have different breeds of horses and different events. And you can sort of share the joy of when your clients win things, however small or however big. And I think that makes life interesting for us. I suppose I have been a bad example um, that I didn't spend enough time with my family. I'm trying to catch up on that. Fortunately, it didn't have the consequences it does for some people. And I'm still happily married with four children who speak to me. So I, I didn't do so bad. But 
you know, three vacations in 23 years when, when they were growing up. That's not a good role model. So I think, uh, and I've got some, some friends in the industry, and they make sure they don't go down that line. I think there's no point being successful. Uh, or as a friend said to me once, no good being the most successful person in the graveyard. So I, anyway, that's three or four tips for you, Alicia. You're off the cuff. Yeah, that's perfect. Thank you so much. Uh, I, I honestly think this is really great. I really enjoyed talking with you. Lovely. Thank you. Bye, Alicia. Bye. Bye. I always say that I'm slightly more hoof obsessed than the average person. And chances are, if you're listening to a hoof care podcast, you are too. So we should probably be friends. Feel free to find me on Facebook or email me at thehumblehoof at gmail.com.